From Pacifica, this is Democracy Now! I'm deeply <clears throat> alarmed at the escalation of violence in Lebanon and in Israel. Parts of Lebanon are under blockade and heavy Israeli military action while in Israel. And Israel is being subjected to indiscriminate rocket attacks by Hezbollah. Israel intensifies its attacks on Lebanon as warplanes launch fresh strikes on the Beirut airport, communication networks, and a power plant. The U.N. Security Council is due to hold an emergency meeting later today. We'll speak with MIT professor Noam Chomsky and go to Jerusalem to talk to Middle East analyst Muin Rabani, then Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Ron Susskind. Intelligence reports indicate that the United States deliberately bombed the Al Jazeera office in Kabul in Afghanistan during uh, the 2001 war. Uh, that is new, and I think that changes a lot about what uh, the U.S. has been denying up to now. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Israel's intensified its attacks on Lebanon as warplanes launch fresh strikes on Beirut International Airport, communication networks, Lebanese roads, and a power plant. More than 60 Lebanese civilians have been killed in the offensive, which follows the capture of two Israeli soldiers by Hezbollah. Israeli jets bomb the main highway linking Beirut to Damascus, tightening an air, sea, and land blockade of Lebanon. This is the Lebanese Minister of Information, Ghazi Alardi. The cabinet calls on UN Security Council to take an immediate decision to stop the firing and lift the blockade and urges the council to put an end to Israeli aggression, which is killing peaceful civilians and destroy the vital and economic infrastructures. The Israeli army said Hezbollah fighters fired more than 100 rockets on northern Israel Thursday, killing two people, wounding 92 others, and hitting Haifa, Israel's third largest city. Hezbollah denied firing into Haifa, but Israel described the incident as a major escalation. This is the Israeli Foreign Ministry spokesperson, Mark Regev. Anyone who fires deliberately and indiscriminately into an urban area, a large metropolitan area like Haifa, has to understand that Israel will act to defend its citizens. No one, no democratic society, can tolerate this deliberate targeting of its civilian population. In Tel Aviv, dozens gathered to protest the strikes. This is an unidentified protester. I'm here to protest against what my government is doing. This is absolutely shame to do that. It's clear to me that there is no military solution. Um, and this is why I'm here. An Israeli protester in Tel Aviv. The escalation has sparked international calls for restraint. The European Union and Russia have criticized Israel's strikes in Lebanon as disproportionate. President Bush said Israel has the right to defend itself but should not weaken the Lebanese government. The UN Security Council is due to hold an emergency meeting later today. Lebanon has urged it to adopt a resolution calling for a ceasefire. Meanwhile, Thursday, the U.S. vetoed a Security Council resolution demanding Israel end its military offensive in the Gaza strip. This is U.S. Ambassador John Bolton. The United States worked hard with other delegations to achieve a more balanced text, 
one which acknowledged that Israeli military actions were in direct response to repeated rocket attacks into southern Israel from Gaza and the June 25th abduction of Israeli Defense Force Corporal Gilad Shalit by Hamas. Regrettably, we were not able to reach agreement. Diplomats criticized the Bush administration because the resolution sponsors had also included language calling for the release of the captured Israeli soldier Gilad Shalit and an end to rocket attacks on Israel. Meanwhile, Palestinians said the international community is abandoning them. This is Riyad Mansour, Palestine's observer to the United Nations. Mr. President, we are highly disappointed and frustrated at the Council's continued inability to act while innocent Palestinian civilians continue to be brutally killed by the Israeli occupying forces. The U.S. has now cast eight of the last nine vetoes at the United Nations Security Council. Seven of those were on resolutions dealing with the Israel-Palestine conflict. Former CIA operative Valerie Plame has filed suit against Vice President Dick Cheney, presidential aide Karl Rove, and Cheney's former chief of staff, Louis Scooter Libby. Three years ago today, columnist Robert Novak published a column identifying Plame as the wife of the former ambassador, Joseph Wilson. Wilson had gone public with findings challenging one of the Bush administration's pre-war claims on Iraqi weapons. Plame's lawsuit accuses the Bush administration of conspiring to end her career and putting her and her family at risk. Libby is the only administration official to have been charged in connection with the case. He faces trial in January. Prosecutors told Rove's lawyer last month he will not face charges. The suit says, quote, as their chief method of punishment, the White House officials destroyed Plame's cover by revealing her classified employment with the CIA to reporters. The White House, quote, embarked on an anonymous whispering campaign designed to discredit the Wilsons and to deter other critics from speaking out. The Bush administration has agreed to allow a court review of its domestic eavesdropping program, but the review will not be unconditional. Senate Judiciary Chair Arlen Specter says Bush has approved wording for a Senate bill that would allow the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, known as FISA, to conduct only a one-time review, not ongoing oversight. The court would be held in secret and its ruling possibly kept under wraps. An administration official told the Associated Press the White House agreed to the one-time review so long as the Senate makes it voluntary and not a requirement. The Washington Post is also reporting the deal would repeal a clause of the original FISA law that made it the exclusive statute governing such intelligence programs. Revoking the clause would appear to make the warrantless eavesdropping no longer illegal. The deal was immediately criticized. Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy, the senior Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee, said, quote, President Bush is saying, if you do every single thing I tell you to do, I'll do what I should have done anyway, Leahy said. On Capitol Hill, the House voted Thursday to renew the 1965 Voting Rights Act. The law was originally passed to reverse years of disenfranchisement of African-Americans. The measure passed by 390 to 33. All no votes came from Republicans. Southern Republicans have complained the reauthorization unfairly targets their states. They also failed to add amendments that would have shortened the bill's extension period and would have stricken requirements that ballots be printed in other languages to accommodate non-English speakers. Before the vote was taken, the Bush administration said it supported the intent of the act but did not take a position on the amendments. 
New developments in the case of Jose Padilla. A federal judge has ruled Padilla will be permitted to view classified documents and videotapes that summarize his statements while in custody. Padilla was only charged in November after three years in solitary confinement on a military brig in South Carolina. At the time of his arrest in May 2002, then-Attorney General John Ashcroft accused Padilla of involvement in a terrorist plot to attack the United States by exploding a radioactive dirty bomb. None of his current charges include these allegations. GQ magazine has revealed new details of the ties between Christian coalition leader Ralph Reed and convicted lobbyist Jack Abramoff. According to former associates, Reed and Abramoff devised a plan they called the Black Churches Insurance Program. The plan would offer lobbying services to African-American churches. Instead of direct payment, Abramoff would arrange life insurance policies that would have made him the beneficiary when elderly church members passed away. A former Reed associate said, quote, it sounds like Jack approached Reed about mortgaging old black people. The news comes just one week before Reed faces a primary in his campaign for Georgia's lieutenant governor. A state of emergency has been declared in California over a 48,000-acre fire that's approaching the San Bernardino National Forest. Firefighters say they've contained just one-fifth of the massive blaze. More than 100 homes and buildings have been destroyed. Dozens have been given evacuation. Lightning ignited the fire last weekend. It's escalated into an inferno that's spread through several small desert towns. Just days before the fire erupted, scientists reported findings showing an increase in large wildfires may be linked to global warming. According to their research, the rise in temperatures was the most important factor in a fourfold increase in the number of western wildfires since 1970. From 1987 to 2003, average spring and summer temperatures were more than one and a half degrees higher than they were during the previous 17 years. The climate changes meant earlier spring, shorter winter snow, and drier forests. Last year was the worst wildfire season on record. This year, there have been more than 60,000 wildfires, twice the number during the same period last year. Thomas Swetnam, a fire specialist and research director at the University of Arizona, said, quote, I see this as one of the first big indicators of climate change impacts in the continental United States. The New York Times has revealed new details on Stephen Green. The former soldier accused of raping 14-year-old Abir Qasim Hamza and killing her, her parents, and her five-year-old sister in Iraq. Green enlisted last year, just days after leaving jail, on his third misdemeanor conviction. He joined the armed forces just as the military increased by nearly half the rate of, quote, moral waivers to potential recruits. In El Salvador, the FMLN is calling for rallies outside Salvadoran consulates in several North American cities today to protest a recent police crackdown on protesters at the University of El Salvador. Students say police opened fire at a peaceful demonstration against rising prices for transportation and food last week. They say they responded by throwing stones and were met with fire from snipers and helicopters. A gunfight broke out, leading to the deaths of three students and two police officers. Dozens more were injured. And in Mexico, more than half a million people are expected to gather in Mexico City Sunday for a massive rally in support of Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador's court challenge for a full recount of the presidential vote. Tens of thousands have already set off from across Mexico on what organizers are calling the March for Democracy. On Thursday, Lopez Obrador held a news conference in Mexico City.
It's clear that constitutional principles were violated, that there wasn't equity, that there wasn't legality, that there wasn't independence. All this is clear. It was filthy. However, if the votes are counted, they will show we were victorious despite all the filth. Mexican presidential candidate Andres Manuel Lopez over there speaking in Mexico City. Those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. And welcome to all of our listeners and viewers. Israel has intensified its attacks on Lebanon as warplanes launched fresh strikes on Beirut airport, on communication networks, and, a, and on a power plant. More than 60 Lebanese civilians have been killed in the offensive, which follows the capture of two Israeli soldiers by Hezbollah. Israeli jets bombed the main highway linking Beirut to Damascus, tightening an air, sea, and land blockade of Lebanon. The Israeli army said Hezbollah fired more than 100 rockets on northern Israel on Thursday, killing two people, wounding 92 others, and hitting Haifa, Israel's third largest city. Hezbollah denied firing into Haifa, but Israel described the incident as a major escalation of the crisis. The Lebanese army also responded to the offensive with anti-aircraft fire. Israel's warned that the south of Beirut could be targeted. Israeli jets dropped leaflets on Thursday, warning people to stay away from Hezbollah offices. Some areas of the city are now without electricity following the attack on the power station. Israeli jets also struck a pro-Syrian Palestinian group in eastern Lebanon. No casualties were reported. The escalation has sparked international calls for restraint. The European Union and Russia have criticized Israel's strikes in Lebanon as disproportionate. President Bush said Israel has the right to to defend itself but should not weaken the Lebanese government. The UN Security Council is due to hold an emergency meeting later today. Lebanon has urged it to adopt a resolution calling for a ceasefire. The U.S. has already vetoed a council resolution demanding Israel end its military offensive in the Gaza Strip. Eight of the last nine vetoes have been cast by the United States. Seven of those were to do with the Israel-Palestine conflict. We're joined on the phone right now by Noam Chomsky, professor of linguistics and philosophy at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, author of dozens of books. His latest is Failed States, the Abuse of Power and the Assault on Democracy. In May, he traveled to Beirut, where he met, among others, Hezbollah leader Syed Hassan Nasrallah. He joins us on the phone from Massachusetts. We welcome you to Democracy Now! Hi, Amy. It's good to have you with us. Well, can you talk about what is happening now, both in Lebanon and Gaza? Well, of course, I have no inside information other than you know what's available to you and uh, listeners. The what's happening in Gaza? Uh, to start with that, uh, again, uh, well, it basically be- the current stage of what's going on. There's a lot more uh, begins with the Hamas uh, election uh, back uh, at the end of January. Uh, Israel and the United States at once announced that they were going to punish the people of uh, Palestine for voting the wrong way in a free election, and the punishment has been severe. Uh, At the same time, it's partly in Gaza, and uh, sort of hidden in a way, but uh, even more extreme in the West Bank, where uh, Omer denounced his uh, annexation program, what's uh, uh, euphemistically called convergence, and described here often as withdrawal but in fact, formalization of the program of annexing the valuable lands, most 
the resources, including water of the West Bank, and uh, cantonizing the rest, uh, and then imprisoning it uh, since Jordan also announced that Israel would take over the Jordan Valley. Well, that proceeds uh, without uh, you know, extreme violence, so it's nothing much said about it. In Gaza itself, the latest phase began uh, on uh, uh, June 24th, when I think it was, when uh, uh, Israel abducted two uh, Gaza civilians, a, a doctor and uh, his brother. Uh, we don't know their names. Uh, you don't know the names of victims. Uh, they were taken to Israel, presumably, and nobody knows their fate. Uh, the next day, uh, something happened, which we do know about a lot. Uh, uh, militants in uh, Gaza, probably Islamic Jihad, uh, uh, abducted a, an Israeli soldier uh, across the border. That's uh, Corporal Gilad Shalit, and that's well known. Uh, first abduction is not. Uh, then, uh, then followed the uh, uh, escalation of Israeli attacks on on Gaza, which. Uh, I don't have to repeat, you've reported them adequately. Uh, the next stage was uh, Hezbollah's abduction of two Israeli soldiers, uh, they say, on the border. Uh, they, their official reason for this uh, is that uh, they uh, are aiming for a prisoner release. There are a few, nobody knows how many. Uh, officially, there are three Lebanese prisoners in Israel. There's allegedly a couple hundred people missing. Nobody knows where they are. Uh, but, the, but the real reason, I think it's generally agreed uh, uh, by analysts, is that, uh, I'll read from the Financial Times, which happens to be right in front of me, uh, the timing and scale of its attack suggests that it was partly intended to reduce the pressure on the Palestinians by forcing Israel to fight on two fronts simultaneously. Uh, David Hurst, who knows this area well, describes it, I think, this morning as uh, uh, a display of solidarity with suffering people, the clinching impulse. Uh, it's a very, in my view, very irresponsible act. It subjects uh, Lebanese to uh, uh, possible, certainly to a plenty of terror and, and possible extreme disaster. Uh, whether it can achieve any result, either in the secondary question of freeing prisoners or the primary question of uh, some form of solidarity with uh, the people of Gaza. I, I hope so, but I wouldn't rank the probabilities very high. Uh, Noam Chomsky, what in the commercial press here the last couple, the last day, uh, a lot of the focus has been uh, pointing toward Iran and Syria as basically the the ones engineering uh, much of what's going on now in terms of the uh, the upsurge of fighting uh, in uh, in Lebanon. Uh, your thoughts on uh, this? Uh, uh, these analyses that seem to sort of uh, uh, downplay the actual resistance movement going on there and, and trying to reduce this once again to pointing toward Iran? Well, the fact is that we have no information about that, and I doubt very much that, that the people who are writing it have any information, and I frankly I doubt that U.S. intelligence has any information. It's certainly plausible. I mean, there's no doubt that there are uh, connections, probably strong connections, between Hezbollah and uh, Syria and Iran, but whether those connections were 
uh, instrumental in uh, uh, motivating these latest actions. I don't think we have the slightest idea. You can guess anything you like. That's a, it's a possibility, in fact, even a probability. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, there's every reason to believe that uh, Hezbollah has its own motivations, maybe the ones that uh, uh, Hearst and the Financial Times and others are pointing to. That seems plausible, too, much more plausible, in fact. There was even some reports yesterday that said um, that the that Hezbollah might try to uh, send the Israeli soldiers that it had captured to Iran. Well, Israel actually claims that it has concrete evidence that that's what was going to happen. That's why it's attempting to blockade uh, both the sea uh, uh, and the air, and uh, bomb the airport. Uh, they are claiming that that's true, but I repeat, we don't have any evidence. Uh, claims by. Uh, uh, a uh, state that's uh, carrying out the military attacks don't really amount to very much in terms of credibility. If they have evidence, it'd be interesting to see it. And in fact, it might happen. Uh, even if it does happen, it won't prove much. Uh, if uh, Hezbollah, wherever they have the prisoners, uh, the, the abducted soldiers, if they decide that uh, they can't keep them in uh, Lebanon, because of the scale of Israeli attacks, they might send them somewhere else. I, 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 I'm skeptical that Syria or, or Iran would accept them at this point, or even that I you know if they can get them there, but they might want to. Noam Chomsky, we have to break. Uh, when we come back, we'll ask you about uh, uh, the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations comments about Lebanon. We'll also be joined by Moeen Rabani. Uh, speaking to us from Jerusalem, uh, Middle East analyst with the International Crisis Group. Then Ron Suskin joins us, author of The One Percent Doctrine, Deep Inside America's Pursuit of Its Enemies Since 9-11. Stay with us. Dom, the Palestinian rap group here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. 
I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Our guest on the phone is Noam Chomsky, professor of linguistics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. His latest book has failed states, The Abuse of Power and the Assault on Democracy. I wanted to ask you about the comment of the um, uh, Israeli ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, He defended Israel's actions as a justified response. This is Dan Gillerman. As we sit here during these very difficult days, I urge you and I urge my colleagues to ask yourselves this question. What would you do if your countries found themselves under such attacks? If your neighbors infiltrated your borders to kidnap your people and if hundreds of rockets were launched at your towns and villages? Would you just sit back and take it or would you do exactly what Israel is doing at this very minute? That was Dan Gillerman, the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations. Noam Chomsky, your response. He was referring to Lebanon rather than Gaza. He was. Yeah. Well, he's correct that, uh, that hundreds of rockets have been fired, and uh, uh, naturally that has to be stopped. But he didn't mention, or maybe at least in this comment, that the rockets were fired after the uh, heavy Israeli attacks against Lebanon, which uh, killed well, latest reports, maybe 60 or so people and destroyed a lot of infrastructure. Uh, as always, things have precedence, and you have to decide which was the inciting event. In my view, the inciting event in the present case, uh, the events are those that I mentioned, uh, the, the constant uh, in, uh, uh, intense repression, plenty of abductions, plenty of atrocities, in Gaza, the uh, steady takeover of the uh, of the West Bank, which in effect, if it continues, is just uh, the murder of a nation. That's the end of Palestine. Uh, the abduction on June 24th of the two uh, Gaza civilians, and then the reaction to the abduction of uh, Corporal Shalit. And there's a difference, incidentally, between abduction of civilians and abduction of soldiers, even international uh, Humanitarian law makes that distinction. Can you talk about what that distinction is? If there's a conflict going on, decide whether it's a war or not, but a military conflict going on, uh, abduction, if, if soldiers are captured, they are to be treated humanely, but it is not a crime at the level of uh, capture of civilians and bringing them across the border into your own country. That's a serious crime. And that's the one that's not reported. Uh, And, in fact, remember that, I mean, I want to tell you that uh, there are constant attacks going on in Gaza, which is basically a prison, huge prison, uh, under constant attack all the time, Uh, economic strangulation, uh, military attack, assassinations, and so on. In comparison with that, abduction of a soldier, whatever one thinks about it, uh, doesn't rank high in the scale of atrocities. Uh, we're also joined on the line uh, by Moeen Rabani, a senior Middle East analyst with the International Crisis Group and a contributing editor of Middle East Report. He joins us from the, on the line from Jerusalem. Welcome to Democracy Now! Hi. Uh, could you tell us uh, your perspective on uh, this latest uh, escalation of the conflict there and the possibility that Israel is going to be mired once again uh, in, a, in, in war in, uh, in Lebanon? 
Well, it's difficult to say. I, I couldn't hear um, Professor Chomsky's comments. I could just uh, make out every sixth word. But I think that Israel is now basically, um, if you will, trying to rewrite the rules of the game and uh, set new terms for its adversaries, basically uh, saying, you know, that no attacks of any sort on Israeli uh, forces or otherwise will be permitted, and um, any such attacks will invite a uh, severe response that basically puts the entire civilian infrastructure of, um, uh, of the entire country or territory from which that attack emanates um, at risk. Judging by what we've seen so far, it more or less enjoys um, tacit to explicit international sanction, and I think um, the possibilities that this conflict could further expand into a regional one, perhaps uh, involving Syria, is at this point quite real. And can you, can you talk about the U.N. resolution uh, vote and the draft resolution 10 to 1 on Gaza, with the U.S. voting no and four countries abstaining, Britain, Denmark, Peru, and Slovakia? Well, I, I think it would have been news um, if that resolution had actually passed. I think, you know, we've, for, for uh, the last decade, if not for much longer, it's basically uh, become a reality in the United Nations that it's an organization incapable of uh, discharging any of its duties or responsibilities towards uh, maintaining or restoring peace and security in the Middle East, primarily uh, because of the U.S. power of veto and the Security Council. And I think we've now reached the point where even a rhetorical condemnation of, uh, of Israeli actions, such as we've seen in, in Gaza over the past several weeks, um, even a rhetorical condemnation without practical consequence has become largely unthinkable, again, uh, primarily because of the U.S. veto within the Security Council. Muin, what do you think is going to happen right now, both in Gaza and in Lebanon? Well, I think um, it's probably going to get significantly worse. Um, if, I mean, in, in Lebanon... Uh, it seems to be a case where Hezbollah has a more restricted agenda of compelling Israel uh, to conduct a prisoner exchange, whereas Israel has a broader agenda of, of seeking um, to compel the disarmament of Hezbollah, or at least to push it back several uh, dozen kilometers from the Israeli-Lebanese border. Um, you know, the Israeli and Hezbollah uh, perspectives on this are entirely incompatible. And that means that this conflict is probably going to continue escalating um, uh, until um, some kind of mediation begins. In Gaza, it's somewhat different. I think there, Hamas has a broader agenda of which uh, affecting a prisoner exchange with Israel is only one, and I would argue even a secondary part. I think there, Hamas's main objective is to uh, compel Israel to accept a mutual cessation of hostilities Israeli-Palestinian, and I think even more important, of um, uh, ensuring their right to govern. And I think at least as, as far as the Israeli-Palestinian part of this is concerned, uh, Hamas's main objective has been to send a very clear message, not only to Israel, uh, but to all its adversaries, whether Israeli, Palestinian, or foreign, to remind the world that political integration and democratic politics for them are an experiment, that they have alternatives, 
And if they're not allowed to exercise their democratic mandate, that they will not hesitate, if necessary, to exercise those alternatives. Finally, uh, Noam Chomsky. Uh, right now, uh, industrial world leaders gathered in St. Petersburg for the G8 meeting. Um, what role does the U.S. have in this? In the G8 meeting? No, what role? They're just gathered together, and this certainly the issue of Lebanon, Gaza, oh, the Middle on. East yeah. is going to dominate that discussion. But how significant is the U.S. in this? I think it will probably be very much like the U.N. resolution that you mentioned, which is, uh, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear what Rabani was saying, but uh, the uh, U.N. resolution was, uh, the veto of the U.N. resolution is standard. That goes back decades. Uh, the U.S. has virtually alone been uh, blocking uh, the possibility of diplomatic settlement, uh, censure of uh, Israeli crimes and atrocities. Uh, when Israel invaded Lebanon in 1982, uh, the UN vetoed several resolutions right away uh, calling for an end to the fighting and so on, and that was a hideous invasion. Uh, and this continues through every administration. Uh, so I presume it will continue in uh, at the G8 meetings. Uh, the United States regards Israel as uh, virtually a militarized offshoot, and it uh, protects it from uh, criticism or actions and supports tacitly and, in fact, overtly supports its expansion, its uh, uh, attacks on Palestinians, its uh, progressive uh, uh, takeover of uh, Palestine, what remains of Palestinian territory, uh, and its uh, acts to, uh, uh, well, actually realize a, a comment that uh, Moshe Dayan made uh, back in the early 70s when he was responsible for uh, the occupied territories. He said uh, to his cabinet colleagues, uh, we should tell the Palestinians that we have no solution for you. You will live like dogs, and whoever will leave will leave. And we'll see where that leads. And that's basically the policy. And I presume the U.S. will continue to uh, advance that policy in uh, one or another fashion. Noam Chomsky, I want to thank you for being with us. Uh, his latest book has failed states, the abuse of power and the assault on democracy. And Muin Rabani, senior Middle East analyst with the International Crisis Group, uh, joining us from Jerusalem. Thank you both. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. We're broadcasting on over 450 stations around the country, on Pacifica radio stations, NPR, Low Power FM, college and community radio stations. We're also broadcasting on PBS and public access TV stations and on both TV satellite networks, Dish Network Channel 9415 Free Speech TV, 9410 Link TV, and on Direct TV Channel 375. And we're video and audio podcasting at democracynow.org. Our headlines are also in Spanish there and also available to any radio station in the country. And we welcome the more than 40 radio stations in the United States and throughout Latin America that are broadcasting those headlines. Juan? Well, earlier this week, Dima Taboub, the widow of Al Jazeera correspondent Tariq Ayoub, filed a lawsuit against the Bush administration for her husband's death. 
On April 8, 2003, Ayub was reporting from Al Jazeera's offices in Baghdad when he was killed by a U.S. missile. He was the first journalist to be killed in Iraq just hours before U.S. forces seized the capital. At a press conference in Washington, D.C. earlier this week, Dima's attorney said the case was being launched in part because of the disclosure last year in London's Daily Mirror that President Bush told Prime Minister Tony Blair of his desire to bomb Al Jazeera's headquarters in Qatar. The Mirror cited a secret memo leaked from the British government. Well, in the new book, The One Percent Doctrine, investigative journalist Ron Suskin writes that the U.S. deliberately bombed the Kabul, Afghanistan offices of Al Jazeera. He writes, quote, on November 13, 2001, a hectic day when Kabul fell to the Northern Alliance and there were celebrations in the streets of the city. A U.S. missile obliterated Al Jazeera's office. Inside the CIA and White House, there was satisfaction that a message had been sent to Al Jazeera. The 1% doctrine also examines how the Bush administration's philosophy of separating analysis from action and embracing suspicion as a justification for the use of American empire has shaped its policies. Well, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Ron Suskin joins us now in a firehouse studio. Welcome to Democracy Now! Thanks for having me. Let's start on the issue of Al Jazeera and what happened in Afghanistan. Well, you know, it's, uh, there's so many things that I found in two years of investigation. This was one of the surprising things. The United States denied this, of course. There's so much in the book they've denied. Now they can't. Uh, it was purposeful. There was great animosity toward, toward Al Jazeera at that point. It was felt inside the administration. They were the mouthpiece for bin Laden, and that was a lot of what bin Laden was doing at that juncture. And they wanted to send a message. Uh, they asked Al Jazeera to, to uh, the proscribe things it was doing. Al Jazeera said, we're a media organization. We don't do that sort of thing. And, uh, and the headquarters was bombed. It's part of a really secret uh, interchange between the U.S. government and Al Jazeera and the Emir of Qatar, the owner of Al Jazeera, that you see throughout the book, which is quite extraordinary. Well, talk more about this. What evidence do you have? Because this is ongoing. Of course, it didn't just happen in Afghanistan, as we heard, Tarek, you, the offices of in uh, Baghdad were attacked. Uh, the a reporter was arrested on the way to the Putin-Bush uh, summit in Crawford, an Al Jazeera reporter. And then you have the whole issue of the Daily Mirror, that secret memo, right. and Qatar's offices. How do you know that Al Jazeera was deliberately targeted in Afghanistan? The sources for this book are senior officials within the United States government, past and present, uh, such that uh, each one of the disclosures in the book has been sourced with, <laughs> with many impeccable sources. Uh, some of this occurs, you know, this is years after the event. Once you pass a certain time frame, I think folks say, well, what do we have to fear about the truth? Certain people do. And those folks essentially are represented in this book. There's not a doubt about this sort of thing, about the thing we're mentioning as to the Kabul bombing. Uh, as well, I think what you see throughout the book is the administration's belief in the value, in almost the, the, the mystical uh, kind of power of the use of force. This is the key, one of the key things that's different here. There was hesitation about use of force with other administrations because often force creates backlash, creates more problems than you solve. Not with this administration, certainly not after 9-11. Well, and a key aspect uh, uh, in reading your book is this, the title, The 1% Doctrine. Could you talk about how, what is the 1% Doctrine, mm -hmm. uh, who's behind it, and how it has affected this uh, policy on the war on terror? The book fixes finally accountability. Some things people suspected but have been denied or they couldn't attach essentially action with outcome. Many of those are now over. It's in the book. It's clear. 
the 1% doctrine comes from a meeting that the vice president has uh, in November of 2001. Um, and it's, uh, it's one in the White House in the Situation Room in which he receives a harrowing bit of intelligence. Pakistani nuclear scientists had sat with bin Laden and Zawahiri a few weeks before 9-11 to discuss the issues of nuclear feasibility for al-Qaeda. Uh, this intelligence is delivered to the vice president. Folks from CIA and NSC are there. And the vice president says two things. He says, we need to think in a new way about these low-probability, high-impact type events, a different way. And then by the end of the briefing, uh, he has that different way. He says, if there's even a 1% chance that WMDs have been given to terrorists, we need to treat it as a certainty, not in our analysis or the preponderance of evidence, he demurs, but in our response. At this moment, the vice president officially separates analysis from action, uh, allows for an evidence-free model to move forward, and says suspicion may be all we have to use the awesome powers of the United States. This defines uh, events, episodes, incidents, all the way uh, to now, moving forward from that point, Iraq, Afghanistan, the global war on terror, what's fascinating about it is that people have different names for it inside of the upper reaches of the government, the 1% rule, the Cheney Doctrine, but it allowed the United States to essentially operate in an evidence-free realm using the extraordinary forces at our disposal, and we all know the, the countless outcomes of that, uh, which the U.S. now is embarrassed by. And the justification being that the uh the, the catastrophic uh, potential of being uh, of underestimating uh, mm -hmm. and even sus a suspicious threat was so great that you have to act as if even your suspicions are facts. Right, Cheney. Well, Cheney basically says, you know, evidence is going to be too much here. Cheney is feeling frustration after all of his years in government with the the sort of search and find model. Evidence often is tricky; it leads you in directions you don't want to go. At this point, he's saying enough. We're not going to have it. We can't expect it. It's too high a threshold. We're going to have to act for good reason, bad reason, or no reason. Action itself is an inherent good. And that really guides events from that moment forward. There are lots of folks who look at this and say, what choice does the vice president have? We're all in a state of panic at this point. It's two, two months after 9-11. They're thinking about a second wave attack. But what you see is that there has not been a fundamental change in this policy or a correction in the five years since this event and this moment, Cheney really running the foreign policy of the U.S., the book shows that clearly, uh, is innovated by Dick Cheney. Why does CIA call Cheney Edgar? Well, that's one of the nicknames inside of CIA for the vice president, Edgar Bergen. I guess you all are old enough to know who that is. Some younger listeners and viewers may not be. The famous ventriloquist and his puppet, Charlie McCarthy. Look, um, there are lots of nicknames. This one is nasty and probably half true. Uh, people inside of CIA uh, and inside of other parts of the government saw early on that the way these two men work, Cheney and Bush, is that Cheney essentially is the global thinker of the pair. He's created an architecture, a platform of sorts, in which George Bush can be George Bush and still be president. He, inside of this framework, embraces his instinct, his gut, acts as a man of action. But Cheney really is the designer of, of the architecture and also the global thinker of the pair. That is made very clear in the book through many, many incidents in which you're in the Oval Office, in the room. We're talking to Ron Suskin, won the Pulitzer Prize while working as a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. His latest book is 1% Doctrine, Deep Inside America's Pursuit of Its Enemies Since 9-11. We're going to go to break. When we come back, I want to ask you about 
slam dunk comment. Uh, you uh, say what Bob Woodward reported actually wasn't true. Um, one of the uh, stories that uh, led us into war. Stay with us. Until the philosophy which old one race superior and another inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned everywhere is war it's a war that until they're no longer first class and second class citizens of any nation until the color of a man's skin is of no more significance than the color of his eyes miss a war that until the basic human rights are equally guaranteed to all without regard to race Bob Marley, War here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Our guest is Ron Suskin, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. His latest book is called The One Percent Doctrine, Deep Inside America's Pursuit of the Enemies of Its Enemies Since 9-11. Well, your book is a fascinating read in terms of the the inner workings of the administration and also the the people in the various agencies, the mid-level people who actually do all the day-to-day work. I call them the invisibles, I call them. The invisibles, right. Uh, But one of the things that really struck me was, uh, I guess it's frightening to a certain degree, how you emphasize that. President Bush doesn't like to read and that basically when he wants he gets a briefing, uh, he doesn't want to go through a a long report. He wants a a verbal presentation. Therefore, how officials present themselves to him and and how they explain the policy options are are more important, actually, than the facts that they're marshalling together. Yeah, it's well, it's look, it's a long analysis. I've been following George Bush since 2002. And in my last book, The Price of Loyalty, Paul O'Neill, former Treasury Secretary, talks about the president being like a blind man in a room full of deaf people. And and in that book, like in this one, you see how verbal briefings for this president who's not a reader, uh, they trumpet books he's been reading, that's mostly marketing by the White House. Uh, the verbal briefing is the way George Bush processes information. He's, he's a very visual listener as well. He sizes people up. He believes in these he, he capacities, these instincts to manage, you know, really almost the overwhelming uh, demands of being president. Uh, but also you have problems, as I show at the beginning of the book, where he's getting, this is again all new, uh, he got face-to-face verbal briefings in, in August of 2001 before 9-11, not just the bin Laden memo. CIA analysts flew down to Crawford to interrupt his vacation. And in one such briefing, where the needles were pointing to red inside of CIA, something's coming, we don't know when, we don't know where, but it's coming, the president said to the panicked analysts, all right now, you've covered your ass. And that's a startling moment. And it's one that folks at CIA, of course, say, you know, that is our president. Uh, We did warn him. Uh, The question was, how did he receive those warnings prior to 9-11? Because, as you say in the book, in the in the early meetings of the administration, and as you you said before in, uh, uh, in your previous book, the 
the focus was on Iraq from the very beginning. Absolutely. From the first NSC meeting, the very first one in January of 2001, all about Iraq, how to overthrow Saddam, what to do once we own that country. Uh, there was opportunity that arrived after 9-11, but the intent was fused from the first day. Ron Suskin, this issue of slam dunk. Explain the original comment as it was reported, the significance of it, and what you have learned. Well, look, it's, it's become a catchphrase for one of the great historical controversies of this era. Did we go to war under false pretenses? Uh, it was reported by Bob Woodward in his book, Plan of Attack, that George Tenet, in a meeting in December of 2002, uh, right before we went in in the spring, uh, said, you know, as to WMDs in Iraq, he said to the president, and in the Oval Office, it's a slam dunk, and he waved his arms and whatnot. George Tenet uh, doesn't remember saying that. John McLaughlin, who was with George Tenet in that meeting, doesn't remember George Tenet saying that. I think that's important. You know, clearly those two words, I don't think Woodward, Bob Woodward, who reported, probably knew how important those words would be going forward. But, of course, they have become uh, really a signature of this era and this controversy. Neither man remembers it. In fact, they say that meeting was more about marketing and presentation, how to make a pitch. It was not about underlying evidence or analysis. I think that's important. Is George Tenet a source for 1% doctrine the way Paul O'Neill for a price of loyalty? I, I'm not getting into any of the sourcing issues because we have more than 100 sources in this book. But I'll say this. If folks are believing that George Tenet is the primary or a primary source for this book, I would say they probably shouldn't go down that path. Uh, this book is, is one in which more than 100 sources all throughout the government, FBI, CIA, even inside of the White House, cooperated. There are people inside of those buildings who believe that truth matters and they want to embrace it. I, I wanted to follow up on Al Jazeera. Um, the, you talk about the direct targeting, the deliberate targeting by the United States of the offices in Kabul. But you also talk about the emir of Qatar providing key information based on a reporter's notebook. Yeah, it's an extraordinary moment. It, it, this book, it's like a spy thriller for some folks with the future of the planet at stake. They run up and down as the administration did on victories and defeats. We are in a global battle here. Intelligence often comes from human sources and personal relationships. George Tennant had those relationships. No one else kind of does now. Uh, one of them was with the Emir of Qatar. He, of course, owns Al Jazeera. And, um, and uh, at a moment, a key moment in the summer of 2002, uh, their star reporter, Yosri Fuda, comes to uh, uh, his bosses at Al Jazeera with the biggest scoop they'd had up to that point. He had visited the safe house in Karachi where Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the 9-11 planner, and his deputy, Ramzi bin al-Sheikh, were hiding. He says, well, it was a whole, you know, skullduggery where he went, you know, through various channels. He delivers it to his bosses. They all say, we must keep this secret. Of course, it goes up the ranks to the emir. The emir summarily tells George Tenet exactly what the reporter has said. I mean, just in terms of how reporters feel about the primacy and privilege of information they receive, it's extraordinary. It's arguably the most important piece of information. We got up to that point. Three months later, we raided that safe house in Karachi. We almost caught Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. We did catch Ramzi bin al-Sheib, and we caught Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's wife and children, the children who we later threatened uh, to try to get Khalid Sheikh Mohammed to talk. In, in a similar manner, you also talk about the first 
uh, attempts at um, cooperation uh, between Libya uh, and the United States on the war on terror shortly after 911 that uh, uh, the um, uh, the ambassador the Saudi ambassador to the United States at his home in England I think it is yeah, arranges right. a meeting between a CIA agent and a, a high-ranking uh, intelligence agent of the Libyan government, and that begins the process of cooperation that eventually led to the normalization of relations. The, look, this is a book about the new era, and one of the questions is, should we embrace the dark side? Should we get information from uh, experts, whatever guises they may be wearing? Musakusa is the man, the Libyan, who, who our officials from CIA meet with at Prince Bandar's house in London, uh, Musakusa, of course, is the man believed to be behind the Lockerbie bombing. He's the Saudi, but uh, he's the Libyan, and Bondar and Bondar's the, the Saudi, Saudi ambassador. ambassador. Uh, a meeting is set up uh, because Kusa uh, says um, there are things I can help you with. We need his help. Several things are important here. One is that uh, the idea uh, two years later that Libya gave up its its weapons of mass destruction because of Iraq is false. It's shown in the book to be false. It was a long process. The president figured he can craft that story any way he wanted because all of it's classified. It'll never come out. It's out now. Two, uh, Kusa ends up being a key source. And you have to ask a question. Is sitting with a man who is ostensibly behind the Lockerbie bombing a kind of acquiescence to the dark side, to terrorists. I mean, their families, of those kids especially on that plane, who literally get nauseous thinking about this. But who are we going to match up with to get the intelligence we need in this perilous moment? That's a question. The report in the last week that the CIA has closed its unit looking for Osama bin Laden. Um, you write in your book about the CIA warning President Bush if he doesn't move troops into Tora Bora, Osama bin Laden's gone. Talk right. about that. Another answer people have been waiting for. It's in the book. End of November 2001, in a briefing inside of the White House, the CIA, who is really the point of the spear in many of the initiatives that work, make no mistake, they made a lot of mistakes, but they also were, were carrying the fight. They briefed the president. They said there were troops at that point in Afghanistan, 1,200 Marines had landed, and they said, if you don't move those troops over the Tora Bora caves, we will lose bin Laden. We are running a terrible risk here. The Afghan proxies, so-called, are exhausted. They're not really committed to getting bin Laden, as you might think. The president ignored that advice. He seemed to defer to Don Rumsfeld and Tommy Franks. It was an enormous mistake. The president has skirted accountability on that. That can no longer occur. I think, again, well, I think the book is fascinating. One of the things that I found missing was sort of a, uh, an analysis of, because you seem to, in the book, if anyone is the villain, it's, it's Don Rumsfeld and it's Cheney again in terms of their decisions and how they're moving the administration forward. The CIA tenant comes out more as heroic figures trying to continue the, the good fight. Uh, but Rumsfeld and Cheney have been around for a long time. They would not have risen up in government circles to the point that they are now and have such enormous influence unless they had enormous backing in sectors of American society, of whether it's in industry or in other sections of government. They, in essence, seems to me, do represent uh, a, uh, a continuing perspective in, in our country, even before 9 of seeking to dominate sections of the world, whether it's Iraq, because mm -hmm. you say they came in from the very beginning wanting to get rid of Saddam Hussein. Right. But it was really 
to get control of Iraq, isn't it, more than to get rid of Saddam Hussein? Well, you know, there are lots of reasons they wanted to do it. That was one. There was belief about certainly the oil was a part of the equation. But I think more what it was, as I show in the book, is a belief that two things. One is that we can't stop the spread of weapons of mass destruction. They're carried on civil technology. B, what we want to do, because we can't fight all the folks who are now going to have weapons, countries specifically, we need to make an example of Saddam Hussein. That was the thinking, to create a demonstration model so other folks will not exhibit similar temerity in challenging the U.S., many of them, with destructive weapons. It was a global experiment in behavior modification. That's what it was. And that was the real thinking. Now, demonstration models are not the province only of the U.S. Anyone can get involved in those. And, of course, Iraq has become a demonstration model of the limits of U.S. power, of overreach, and of some of the means that, frankly, we may not have been right to employ uh, toward whatever ends that has created multiplication, a, a multiplicative effect of our problems and enormous animosity toward the U.S. around the world. Ultimately, at the next attack, and a lot of people in the book say this, it will be because our alliances have been frayed by this unilateral embrace of U.S. power, in some cases for its own sake. The president feels, act, it's a game changer. It puts your opponents on the defensive. Act for whatever reason, just act. Can you talk about the story you tell in your book about the FBI moving to weaponize First Data Corps? Oh, gosh. First Data is um, an example of many companies that have entered into secret relationships to carry forward U.S. policy using their consumer bases to whatever end. And that's the reason I think First Data is important in the book. Uh, you know, they say we want to help. Lots of companies did that, a lot of the telecom companies with the NSA. And what happens at this point is they get involved and, in... And who is First Data? First Data is a giant credit card processor. Sorry, they're also in Western Union, uh, the tele old telegraph company. Western Union is a, a uh, an, uh, company of choice for terrorists. They wire money through it. What you see as we go forward is just how problematic and complicated it is for companies to get involved in this way. We need to draw these lines clearly. First Data runs thousands of credit card sweeps. Generally, they were papered, so to speak, with all sorts of paper, you know, national security letters, some subpoenas, etc. At the end of the day, though, we even get to the point where Western Union has set up wire transfer traps in the West Bank and Gaza, handing Israeli intelligence, specific information as to whom is who is picking up wire transfers uh, inside of the Palestinian organizations. Uh, that, of course, is a golden nugget for intelligence. They are then able to follow the carrier to the safe house. It changed the state of play on the West Bank and Gaza in a destructive fashion. Do we want companies doing this? Should companies be here? And what about the consumers here and abroad who use those companies? Those are the questions raised. Ron Suskin, I want to thank you very much for being with us. Uh, his book is The One Percent Doctrine, Deep Inside America's Pursuit of Its Enemies Since 9-11. And you can read the transcript or go to our website at democracynow.org to get a copy of the DVD. Uh, I want to thank you very much for being with us. My pleasure. Democracy Now! is produced by Mike Burke, Sharif Abdokadus, John Hamilton, Elizabeth Press, Yerubin Richin, Aaron Mate, and Frank Lopez. Mike DeFilippo and Nick Marsilio are engineers. Special thanks to and welcome back to Uri Gal 
Khaled, and thanks to Angela Alston for filling in, Evan Reagan, Rebecca Silver, Tyshawn Black, John Randolph, Peter Yoon, Jerome Bourgeois, Megan Whitney, and Samantha Chamblay. You can sign up at our website for our news headlines and stories and media alerts, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez for another edition of Democracy Now!,